Welcome to the Kingdom Roots podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. My name is Laura Taro, and today on the podcast, we are actually completing our conversation on Scott's book, Pastor Paul, Nurturing a Culture of Christiformity in the Church. And over the last several sessions, we've been looking at seven examples that demonstrate how nurturing Christiformity was at the heart of the Pauline mission. And this episode, we're going to look at Paul's culture of wisdom. And I have to say, I'm really excited about this conversation because I think it's really important. Um, Well, I'm glad you are. I agree with you. I think wisdom is uh, a neglected virtue. Yes. Yes. And you begin this chapter in the book by asking the question, why do so few Pauline scholars address wisdom? Why is wisdom so little valued in our churches today? And to answer that question, you offer one word, and I'm going to practice saying this, but it's juvenilization. So tell (laughs) us what that means. What's juvenilization? Yes. Thomas Bergler, a professor, uh, wrote these two books on on juvenilization or euthanization of the church that um, he traces back into the 1950s and 60s when uh, an adolescence culture began to develop in the United States. And he noticed that uh, the pattern was that adults increasingly tried to become relevant to the youth. And in the process of trying to become relevant to the youth, they capitulated on adult culture. Mm. So there was no, uh, this is a new term, there was no adulting. Uh, (laughs) It was uh, being hip and being relevant and being young. And I mean, I I saw this happen when I was a kid uh, to grow up was to begin to dress like your father, Mm. coat and tie, et cetera. And it was in the 60s that I began to notice that churches, especially probably the 70s, We blame it on the 60s, but it was mostly the 70s that uh, churches increasingly became hip and pastors began to dress down. Mm. Uh, Adults began to dress down and tried to, you know, they wanted to be youth longer and they wanted to be cool. Well, what uh, Burglar does in his book is demonstrate that this led to the lack of, let's say, adult maturation in the church. And instead of churches growing into Christian maturity, they maintained sort of the euthanization or juvenilization of the Christian life. Hmm. And uh, uh, there was um, Luis Palau, I believe, is the one who talked about the perpetual childhood of the believer or the perpetual adolescence of the believer. And there's something to that that occurred in the 60s and 70s, or at least was triggered by then. And that's what Burglar's getting at. Now, a mature, uh, a wisdom culture um, values gray hairs and bald heads. And as I always say, actual gray hairs that are colored um, <laughs> as well. And it values age and maturity and experience Um, as the signs of maturity and the signs of wisdom. And it values that the most as you grow toward that rather than perpetually being cool, you become an adult 
in your faith, mature and balanced in judgment, etc. Hmm. And um, and he began to say that this has Im- impacted, especially the American church. And when I read his two books, I I said this is this is really important stuff, hmm. and I'm I'm impressed by him. Yeah. Did I cover that's... it? Did I cover? Yeah, it? that's so good. Well, I I definitely think there has been a trend um, towards centering youthful culture. And I guess where my brain goes is the question, what we lose in that process, Mm -hmm. what gets lost when we, when we center youth and we don't pay attention to wisdom, what, what do we start to lose in that process? Well, the first thing you do is you lose the senior citizens in your church. And let's not even call them senior citizens. Let's say anybody over 55, 60 years Mm -hmm. old, they become irrelevant. Yeah. And that everything on the stage, the platform behind the pulpit, everything is shaped for the attractiveness of youth rather than the maturation of wisdom. Mm. And um, you start to become trendy, lacking the uh, the balance of yeah. experience and wisdom. Um, it's just you lack the toleration, the experience. You know, you talk to a senior citizen. What do you think about what's going on with the president? Uh, let's say during the Trump era or even the Biden era. And, mm-hmm. and they'll say, you know, presidents come and go. We'll be all right. And other people are just think it's the end of the world. Right. You know, and and the 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 wise people, the old people in the church will say, well, I remember this is the way we thought about James, John Kennedy. This is the way we thought about Bill Clinton. This, you know, They go back in time yeah. and say, we got through those years. It didn't make that big of an impact. Uh, so they lose perspective. Um, and I think they lose history. Hmm. There are so many people who think that the. The most recent, I just read this the other day. I Actually, I only skimmed it, but I saw the, the uh, article title that the average worship song today only lasts between two and three years. Yeah. And then they, they started saying that in 1980s or 1990s, songs lasted 10 to 15 years. And I thought to myself, hey, dude, go back to the <laughs> hymn books. We were singing songs that were 100 years old, 200 yeah, years old, yeah. 300. And those songs carried, they were they were something that everybody in my church could sing these hymns. Mm-hmm. When we were in Sunday school class, we memorized hymns. Yeah. Even just as I am, we memorized mm. that song. as And we got a little medallion on our ribbon in our Sunday school class that went with us from third grade mm. to fourth grade to fifth grade. Then when we got to seventh grade, we were too cool to have ribbons. <laughs> But um, those uh, that's that's one of the things we lose history. Yeah. Uh, Everything becomes what's most recent and everything is the most recent information. And there are things that we want to keep up to date with. And there are things that we want to anchor in the deep story of history and tradition. Mm -hmm. And we're losing losing that in the church. Yeah. I think that's so good. There, there are so many things that go through my mind just in connection to that. But I think the perspective piece is really, really helpful because I think um, some of our more mature believers have often um, 
experienced different congregational settings. They may have been in multiple churches throughout their own lives. They've seen different pastors. They've seen, um, you know, they've witnessed and been, been a part of different church systems. So they have perspective to offer even to that. I think, um, I was at a church where there was a shift going on, largely connected to worship, where um, the younger people were all headed towards one campus where the worship was loud, you know, and was um, geared towards younger generations. And the older folks were all moving to a different campus where there was traditional worship with an organ and a piano and, you know, was more familiar to them. The problem was as those communities split, when it came time to vote people onto the executive board, um, people didn't know each other. So Mm. for a long time, the older Christians, the older church members just voted in their own people. So the younger generation was saying, we don't know who any of these people are, yet mm. we're supposed to be voting on them, but we're, we're not in relationship with these people. We don't know them or their values or what they have to bring to the table. And then there was a really interesting shift that happened where um, the as the younger congregation grew up, then they were reaching sort of the age where they could serve on the board and had bandwidth for that. And so I was hearing from the senior citizens, we don't know who any of these people are. We don't know their (laughs) spiritual maturity. We don't, we don't feel comfortable voting people onto the executive board who we don't know. We can't testify to their character. Um, And I thought, wow, that is, I wish these congregations worship together. So they knew one another and it just created all kinds of problems because the people making decisions were not connected to each other. And, um, yeah, we're basically worshiping completely separate from each other. Yeah. Well, I mean, when you start segregating, I I grew up in a church that had, uh, senior citizens. My dad taught the ambassador class. Um, and they all came to Sunday school because they all wanted, you know, everybody was friends with one another. But when you begin to segregate churches, let's say it's one thing to have kids go off to Sunday school because they're not ready for, let's say, church services. But when when there's a like a 20 and 30 year old, they almost have their own church. Uh, that's the makings of destroying the mm-hmm. intergenerational nature of the church. Yeah. And it will destroy the capacity to gain the wisdom of older people. And I've I've often told our students in classes, you need to become friends with older pastors when you become a pastor, when yeah. you're working in church. People who are older, and you just need to listen to them hmm. because they're going to have things to say that when you first hear it, you're going, eh, I don't know. You think five years later, you say, oh, I wish I'd have done what they said. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. there's um, there is something profound about life's experiences of teaching us how this life works. Right. And uh, that's one of the, now you brought up at the beginning, uh, the lack of interest in wisdom in Paul. Yeah. I, I did some bibliographic research on, on this theme. What I discovered is that nearly everything written about wisdom in Paul was about Christolo- the wisdom of Christology. In other words, mm. Christology, Jesus as the sage rather than the praxis of wisdom that is characteristic of the Pauline letters. Now, at one level, you might say it's the, it's the 
color of water in the Pauline letters. So you might miss what you're swimming in, but um, it is so true that we, we don't, I think because of the juvenilization of our culture and the lack of interest in the senior citizens in our church, we don't see the pervasiveness mm. of a wisdom culture at work in the New Testament and in the Pauline letters. So I wanted to try to rectify some of that. And I got to be honest with you, I, it's, I felt like I was on my own. I was just mm. kind of saying things that nobody else is talking about. So it was for me, it was a lot of fun. And I, frankly, Laura, when you wrote me this week, uh, about mm-hmm. the, you know about the topic that you really liked it I thought well this is this is rewarding to me not <laughs> only because it comes from you but because I think there's something here that is ignored in the church and we need to we need to uh, have this I I feel this at times in our church that we're in mm-hmm. right now some of the young people think like you know and they have uh, I think we have really wonderful young young adults but I think at times they think we're the ones who know what's going on. And if the old people would just get out of the way and I'm sitting there thinking, okay, there are things that the older people can learn, but there are a lot of things these older people have that you don't have yet. And it's going to take a while. Right. They can help with rearing children. They can help with politics. They can help with social relations. They Mm. can help with marriage relations. I mean, there's so many things that, The gray hairs in your church can be a Mm -hmm. help too. Yeah, I absolutely believe that's true. And it's, we're in a church right now that is extremely intergenerational. And it's one of the things that I've really appreciated. Um, Those kinds of interactions, I just really value. I think they're really important. Um, Just to get to Paul and what, what he teaches us, um, about wisdom, he definitely emphasizes the role of Christ in wisdom um, and he talks about, and he connects it to the old Testament tradition of wisdom, which I think is really important. Um, and he talks about the emphasis of how the Holy spirit prompts wisdom in us. And as you were talking, I was thinking we're seeing so much of, um, the repercussions of ignoring wisdom and mm-hmm. of, of moving towards the juvenilization of the church. I, I've been listening to the rise and fall of Mars Hill and that sort of wrapped up this last week. And that was one of the things I was thinking is there were voices um, of wisdom that I think tried to speak into this process that were ignored. And then Mm -hmm. there were other voices of wisdom that should have spoken um, that maybe didn't because they were centering the youth and set, trying to center some sort of vitality that they saw and maybe downplayed um, some of the warning signs that they saw. So I was just thinking like, this is so pertinent, this idea that we learn to value wisdom and yeah. to pay attention to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Um, well, you know, um, I, I've heard this said by a number of, uh, let's say, well-worn pastors. Uh, people who are seasoned, matured, who would say 30-year-olds should not be in charge of a church of 5,000 people. They don't have the character formation, the experience, Mm. 
to handle this. One of the things I've noticed as I've aged is the young people have some great ideas, but do they know how to relate to 70-year-olds, 75-year-olds in a church? You know, they, they come in and they want to change everything. You know, a 75-year-old has been there and done that, and they want a church that ministers to them in their retirement, mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. their their lack of drive to change the world and to bring in the newest thing, and their desire for the good old message of the gospel mm. and the goodness of God to be emphasized one more time so they can live that week in that. So, yeah. um, well, I, I was also thinking, uh, I don't know that we've quite defined wisdom as mm. I was saying this. Uh, yes. I like to say wisdom is living in God's world in God's way. And God's way is the way of Christ. So wisdom is ultimately living in the way of Christ or living in a uh, Christoform way. Mm. That's genuine wisdom. Uh, Wisdom is not what works, the utilitarian and the pragmatic, although it can be that way. Wisdom is deeper and more profound that way uh, Mm. than than, let's say the pragmatics. Sometimes wisdom is just seen as, you know, if you've driven a lot of times, you know how to make a right-hand turn. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of pragmatics. But a wise person knows how to drive, let's say a Christian, knows how to drive as a Christian. Mm. And that takes it to another level. So wi- wisdom is living in God's world in God's way, and God's way is the way of Christ. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. That's good. No, I think that's so helpful. And then you also get into this idea um, of the conservation of wisdom that we have a responsibility basically to take, to preserve uh, what we've received, to recognize the wisdom that we've received and to preserve it um, and to hand it off to the next generation. So we need both. We need both the wisdom of our elders, but also the lived experience of the young people that are, probably more engaged in what is happening currently. And we need both of those things, but there needs to be a place where we are receiving the wisdom that we've received, you know, that's gone before us and then passing that on and blending it with the experience, the lived experience perhaps of the younger generation, but in a way that preserves it and um, interprets it for the new needs that are in front of us. Well, there's no question that uh, a wisdom culture is a conservative culture. Now, a conservative culture is not one that never changes. It's one that changes in ways that are congruent with the past. A revolutionary culture wants to start everything all over again. And so I've often said this, you know, these megachurches that want to start all over are the most liberal expression of Christianity that is imaginable. Hmm. A conservative, and oftentimes some of these megachurches, we're conservative evangelicals. Well, you're not. A conservative is one who conserves the best of the past. If you think that you get to create a doctrinal statement from scratch in your church, that is liberalism. Hmm. A conservative knows the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Chalcedonian definition, 
It knows the ecumenical councils. It knows the contribution of the Reformation. It knows the contribution of the great revivals of the United States. It knows the contribution, let's say you're evangelical, it knows the contribution of evangelicalism in the 20th century. But it also knows if it's Wesleyan, the Wesleyan tradition, the Methodist tradition, the Presbyterian tradition, the congregational, whatever. That's a conservative. Is It says, people before us have learned, hmm. and we can learn from them. And build on what they've, uh, what they know to be solid. This is the way all knowledge works in the world of, let's say, history. We build on what others have taught us. In mm. science, we build on what others have taught us. Those are essentially conservative movements, and yet we have these churches that think they have to start all over again. And I'm sitting there going, "No, we did that in the first century." <laughs> we don't need to start all over again. There's too much wisdom hmm. in the past. So so wisdom is a conservative movement in the sense that it listens to the solid contributions that have been learned in the past and builds on that. So it's not unchanging, but it is changing in a way that is congruent with and consistent with the what we have known to be true in the past. Hmm. I mean, just think about this. You know, if you if you want to change, let's say, build a car engine, you're not going to invent everything all at once. You're going to go listen to someone who has done this and learn what people have learned in the past. Otherwise, you're going to blow yourself up, you know, or you're going to have a car that's going to run right off the ditch. The brakes won't work. I mean, this is the way car uh, airplanes started, right? Mm-hmm. You want to start an airplane. You're not foolish enough to go invent it in your own living room. You're going to read up on people. So that's that's what I'm saying. Right. Mm-hmm. I think that's really important. And we do, I mean, we have such a wealth of information. I, I often tell people, it's pretty much impossible for you to ask a new question. Um, <laughs> this this faith has been around for two thousand years. You, you know, you're not you're not coming up with something that no one has ever thought about before in relation to understanding your faith. Um, this has been some of the brightest minds of of history have applied themselves to understanding scripture and to understanding faith. So, you know, when my 14 year old son comes at me with a question, he thinks he's going to stump me if God, you know, can create a rock too big for him to lift or whatever. I'm like, do you think you're the first person to ask this question? This is, this is not something new. Um, so, and I think, you know, a, a great starting place is to look at what we've received. You, you write that it's the responsibility of the wise pastor to pass on and nurture the Christocentric nature of our faith. We confess Jesus as Lord and as God to the glory of God the Father, and we can only do this through the anointing of the Spirit. And I, I think about that, like the, the pastor has a responsibility to have a broad understanding of the Christian tradition. And so when the pastor is preaching or is in conference with someone and is sitting down and providing pastoral care, 
they're not innovating. They're drawing on a history of experience, a history of teaching, and then they're adapting it to a particular need or a particular situation. And that's how we should view it. Yeah. Uh, And that's what pastoral wisdom is. It's not simply that you're brilliant. It is that you are passing on the wisdom of the church in a particular context. And that's that's what true wisdom is. It it mm. it does it is conservative in that sense, but it is discerning and adaptable and adjusting and timely. Yeah. It's timeless, it's timely timelessness. That's what wisdom yeah. is. Yeah. Hmm. That's good. I, I think I you're I, I hope I wrote that somewhere. That was pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> you you talk about this juvenilization process and you're saying that it's either irritated by this, you know, conservative historical process or it bego- it goes beyond irritation to rebellion. And you say so many want revolution and are trashing the deep traditions of the church's wisdom and are put off by the patience of the gray hairs and so reject the wisdom tradition. The gray hairs are considered to be part of the problem for they have either surrendered church cultures to relevance or have not become worthy of emulation. The solution to this is not revolution or rebellion, but repentance, turning back to the wisdom of the church and seeking it with the gray hairs. And I have to say, this is Advent season. I love that the word repentance shows up in that sentence. Um, But that idea that... that, um, we need to not be reactive and say just old things are unhelpful. We need to innovate. Um, I think that, you know, there does need to be a place of repentance and realization that what we have been given is a gift um, Mm -hmm. from those who have gone before us. And we have a role to play in preserving that and also thinking carefully about how to faithfully apply it to our current setting. And I think that's so critical. You know, um, you should run from people who say that the church got everything wrong until now. You should run from someone who says, everybody's taught you this about preaching, but they're all wrong. (laughs) Uh, Everybody taught you this about justification, but they're all wrong. The chances of everybody before you being all wrong are zero. And the claim that everybody got this wrong before you, and you have the true wisdom or the true idea on this, is is a form of pride and arrogance of a lack of recognizing that everything that we know and learn is rooted in those who have gone before us. Mm. So I, I'm, uh, I'm really, I'm nervous about all this talk about revolution that we sometimes hear. When what we need is wise discernment of mm. the of the uh, and wisdom for the present moment, and that's not a revolution, but it can be. It can be a revolutionary moment when mm. you realize. Well, this is the way the truth of the gospel is going to manifest itself in this context. But it's that old gospel of 1 Corinthians 15 and, and the gospels and the sermons in the book of Acts yeah. and second, you know, it, it's those, 
it's that gospel that will mm-hmm. have um, a timely timelessness. Yeah. Or is that a timeless, I like that. timeliness? <laughs> yeah. I, I think one of the things that, that just again in this current moment that comes to mind is the role of deconstruction in connection to wisdom. Um, because I do think there is a, a place for us to review carefully um, and to think about what we've been given. Um, I would make the point that a lot of times what gets labeled deconstruction is actually a deeper return um, to deeper truths. In many cases, it's a desire to connect um, with the gospel in a deeper way and to uncover some of the things that have been layered on top of it. I just, I wonder if you have any thoughts about that. Did you know I did a long series on beyond deconstruction on my, okay. Uh, Yes, I do have thoughts on this. I really (laughs) like your idea of it's a return to deeper truth. Hmm. Um, Here's what I would say. I don't think I said this on the, in the series, but when you bring it up in the context of wisdom, people who are going through deconstruction, if they would spend an hour a week with someone who's 60 or older, who has been through it, um, they will gain insight into what mm. they're experiencing. Yeah. And not someone who's going to tell them what to do. You know, That's not the way of wisdom. But someone who will listen to them and give them guidance for what they're going through and give them perspective and, and dimension to mm. what they're going through. I want to say, I want to hope that many people who are using the word deconstruction are actually going toward deeper truth. But sometimes I, I think it's just kind of, um, it's it's not that profound. Yeah. And, I, and I want it to be. I think that if they would not be in a hurry and they would listen to their questions and actually pursue answers rather than be satisfied with the momentary um, flash mm. of seeing something that they can denounce. Yeah. I think that it could lead to a real recovery in the church. And, for, and you know, I, I saw this in the emerging movement. I really thought at times the emerging movement had the possibility of a very serious uh, shaking of the evangelical movement to shift it. But I think I think it got kind of carried away with itself and lost contact with its deeper deeper problems, with deeper answers. And instead, mm. I think they saw some some serious problems, and pursued shallow answers and then moved on. And yeah, you know, said um, you know, stuck their finger in the plum pie and said, "What a good boy am I?" <laughs> um, I I don't think it was I don't think it was as pr- productive as it could have been. I hope that helps. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I I think for many people in this moment, um, there are some things that they're dissatisfied with, that they're frustrated with. And I, I, I guess my own answer to that would be it's worth digging in deeply into the history of our faith, because I think there are deeper answers that would satisfy. I, it may be yeah. the case that what they're reacting to is this juvenilization of the yeah, church. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. I think that they see the shallowness, the superficiality 
in the church and say, I want something better and more because I've experienced a Jesus who is far more profound than this going to church and listen to people sing for 30 minutes and stand up and feel good about themselves and have a sermon that's going to be all so relevant by some young person. And they want something profound. Mm. Uh, and I think they I think they have the opportunity because of their deconstructive mindset, their critical thinking skills, they have the opportunity to pursue these things uh, in a deeper way. And I, and I hope they do. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Well, wisdom has something to teach us and I think we ought to pay attention to it. And for Paul, wisdom looks like Christ and Christiformity. So I think that's really, really helpful for us to remember. Well, I want to thank you, Scott, for taking us through this series on the book, Pastor Paul, and I hope it's been helpful to our listeners. I know there's a lot of just really helpful content in there um, for all believers, but I think particularly for pastors who are trying to figure out how to nurture Christiformity in their congregations. Um, so thank you for being on this journey with us. We look forward to being with you next time as we continue our conversation on how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Thank you so much. 